before I knew about this house and what went on inside those dark walls, I refused to believe that such things existed. Certainly not now, in the 20th century, in America. But now I know they do exist and will always exist as long as there is evil in the world and those who prefer evil to good. No matter what race or creed, we believe in God. We pray to him to help us in time of need. They must worship in their secret places and make their ghastly sacrifices under cover of night. Sea is far below. it been since you had yourself a big hot screaming ear full of forgotten horrors? <laughs> well, that's too long. Pull in close now for a crepuscular half hour or so of the Forgotten Horrors podcast with your hosts, John Woolley, Michael H. Price, and my own self, Wolf Brand Jack. <laughs> And thank you very much, Wolf Brand Jack and uh, Michael H. Price. And we have a special Forgotten Horrors uh, episode this time around because we have a special guest star, Allison Pierce, all the way from the UK. Uh, Allison, known for uh, writing her writing about horror and uh, about horror movies. And uh, after this, she's going to be known to you all for talking about horror movies as well. So, Allison, welcome. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. I'm absolutely delighted to be here as um, a very long time fan of the work of Forgotten Horrors. This is right. somewhat of a little delight for me. Well, that's said. terrific. Well, it's a delight <laughs> for us too. And Michael, you're with us, are you not? Oh yeah. Well, um, Alison's timing in arriving here is is excellent. Uh, the concentration of emphasis upon women in the genre. Uh, roughly coincides with a new film from uh, my former uh, newsroom assistant, Deborah Voorhees, uh, who has completed and released a uh, Friday the 13th homage called 13 Fanboy, which is, <laughs> really? which, is about, which is about a Friday the 13th obsessed stalker. Wow. And wow. Of course, Do you not know this? I need to find out about this. Uh, Deborah, was, Deborah is one of the more memorable, memorable female characters in the first cycle of Friday the 13th, mm. uh, the one that takes place at the rehabilitation camp. Uh, she showed up. She showed up one day at uh, my newsroom, uh, introduced as uh, a new member of the staff ended up being one of my primary backup film critics and uh, 
I kept thinking she looks so familiar. She looks so familiar. And finally, an, uh, another one of my colleagues showed up at the house with a video cassette of this this particular Friday the Thirteenth. There she is. Now the mystery is solved. It was kind of a, a, a kind of a magical, mystical thing. <laughs> well, and speaking of that, also, uh, Michael, we happen to have Allison on here where we definitely have, we, we're not trying to pander here at all, Allison, but we definitely have a film that has a, a female point of view, certainly a female viewpoint yes. character, a female writer. And uh, so Joey always makes me be the one to do the synopsis before we start yep. actually deconstructing the film. So let's just say that in the film Back from the Dead, released uh, in 1957 by 20th Century Fox, made by Regal Films, that uh, a man and his wife return to his, uh, return from LA, I guess, to his hometown, which is somewhere on the ocean. And uh, she is going to have a baby and she loses the baby. And at the same time, she becomes possessed with the spirit of her husband's first wife. Now, along for the ride is her sister, the, the wife's sister, who becomes the viewpoint character. And before it's all over, you have uh, some black magic. You have uh, a lot of, of very um, good acting, I think, from, uh, from the, the female lead, Peggy Castle, who did a lot of good work. And some really good acting also by the, by the woman who plays, uh, who plays her sister, uh, uh, who just Marsha Hunt, who had been around in Hollywood since the 30s. So essentially, uh, it's, uh, uh, it, it it's comes from what I have heard called the HIBK school. Are you familiar with that? Uh-huh. Had no. I but known. It's like uh-huh, the right. <laughs> it's the gothic vibe. Had I but known uh, before I toured Hambrick Castle that it had been the home of such horrors, I would never have set foot through, you know, that kind of thing. And that's exactly (laughs) what the narration is at the very beginning from Marsha Hunt's character. Uh, And uh, and so it's it's got this gothic vibe to it throughout the film. And it's really weird because it's gothic and it's got some of the oddest soundtrack music or the most um like uh, out of this world soundtrack music yeah right <laughs> yeah it's a funny so juxtaposition strange. yeah yeah michael do you know that composer at all that guy um i guess it was uh i cannot think of his name right off hand i had it down here ralph uh, Krauschar, i believe was his name an experimentalist ralph. primarily mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what do you but, know about him <clears throat> i very little is known about him i uh, uh see the film i see the name associated with films that uh, are not formula mm-hmm. and uh, and that's and that's about as much as as i know to to uh speak knowledgeably about i i do know that the uh, i do know that the uh, orchestral element the orchestral element is more in the service of mood building than of dramatic underscore. Yes. In other words, there, he doesn't he doesn't do your usual orchestral stings uh, to emphasize a certain moment of bracing emotionalism or horror. Uh, the French composer, mm-hmm. but uh, but worked largely in Hollywood on Poverty Row, and. Uh, didn't get the breaks, you know. I, 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 
but you do see his name show up on network television series, right? Uh, like the uh, the Peter Lawford Thin Man, mm-hmm. and some of the '70s stuff, like Six Pack Annie and Dirty O'Neill, the story of a cop, and he did those as well. You know, so yeah, he was yeah. he was working the exploitation circuit too. Um, so. Uh, where do we start? I think that it's very interesting. Let's start with the uh, screenwriter. Uh, Allison, I know that you were interested in the screenwriter, uh, Catherine Turney. What what have you turned up about her and her work in this picture? Well, I wanted to thank you not only for inviting me on, but um, suggesting this film because I'd never heard of Back from the Dead, I have to admit. And I thought, oh, I wonder why they've suggested this one. So the first thing I did was look up the company credits and I saw that it was written by a woman, um, Catherine Turney, and adapted from her own novel. And I thought, aha, this is why um, they've chosen (laughs) this one for me. And it was fascinating. I'd never heard of Catherine Turney before either. Um, I love um, 1930s and 1940s horror films. And then I kind of get back into them in the 80s and 90s. I'm usually a bit rubbish on the 50s and 60s. And I'd not I'd not heard of this woman, so I thought I'd better learn about who this woman is in time for your podcast. Right. And so I started digging around on stuff and then found out that she was a prolific scriptwriter across stage and screen and for radio. And that in um, recent years, she's been given, like, official attribution for writing the script for Mildred Pierce in Mm -hmm. 1945 Mm -hmm. and that she was a contract writer for the studios at a time when there really weren't many women screenwriters working at all and she was writing for all the big kind of um, actors of that period and people like Ida Lupino Um, we have creations with Barbara Stanwyck and she just sounds wonderful and um, back from the dead is adapted from her novel which i think is called the other one which came out in 1952 and this is that was her first novel and then she's adapted it um to make this film as well so i absolutely love digging into all the background um how she's been quoted as saying at Warner Brothers, women writers were not particularly highly thought of. We were seen as a necessary evil and seldom paid as much as the men. But they had to put up with us because people like Betty Davis and Joan Crawford were all demanding stories slanted towards women. So it's like, oh, this stuff's amazing. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, well, def- I'm definitely going to write about her in my next book now. I'm fascinated you, you by find, her. You find Catherine Turney's trajectory uh, pointing directly to a picture or a, a novel like the other one and its adaptation into film, uh, uh, she she did one of the better Cornell Woolrich adaptations. Mm. Uh, in fact, when she was uh, at work in in mainstream Hollywood, uh, that picture being uh, uh, no man of her own. Oh, that Barbara Stanwyck picture, sure, yes, the which, which, yeah. which, which, which which is based on Cornell Woolrich's novel "I Married a Dead Man." The title is misleading. It's actually a, a pretty heavy-duty soap, but the uh, uh, the the interpretation and the emphasis on the sinister undercurrents, as opposed to the romantic entanglements, uh, definitely points toward uh, back from the dead. And you know a little bit more. You you were talking uh, before we went on uh, on the podcast officially. You know you know a little bit more about Catherine turning about uh, 
I believe she was one of the first, if I'm not mistaken, you all can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think she's one of the very first women to be uh, hired as a Warner Brothers, uh, Warner mm-hmm. Brothers staff writer, right? Correct. Yeah. And Back that, was, in the that, that was a difficult position to obtain if you were a woman working in old Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I'm also happy to see that she wrote three episodes of the of uh, of uh, One Step Beyond the TV series. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. that was toward the end of her career, but still, yeah, move, move over Twilight Zone. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> that's right. Well, all right. So you you've uh, Allison, you've seen the picture. Uh, what do you think yes. about it? Um, I was absolutely fascinated. By it. It's um like we we we've never met before, you guys don't know me, and yet you've um, managed to land on a film that speaks to like my niche of horror so closely, <laughs> like so closely. Like I was watching this film and I was like, I feel like this is like a mashup of the uninvited from 1944, mm-hmm. where they've got a house by the sea, and you just know that the sea and the cliffs are gonna play a big part. And then you've got like the traces of Rebecca, like the fa- the haunting and kind of the feeling of the past wife. And then it feels to me like it's like the uninvited. And Rebecca meets the Undying Monster from 1942 yeah. because it's like, is there, a, is there a supernatural element? Is there? Maybe there is. Maybe there is. And so it's um, it's like this fascinating mashup of like narratively and tonally, like 1940s gothic women's horror noir gaslight type films but made in like is it 57 i think it's made 57 is when it was released so, yeah. 1957 so, at, a, at a time when um it a lot of pictures of that general nature were showing up during that period i'm reminded in particular of, of uh, what i consider to be uh, the best of it from its writer director a picture called tormented mm-hmm. bird eye gordon yes which has that same haunted seacoast mm-hmm. yes attitude about it uh the, the the film feels like a throwback and yet it is more progressive than than just about anything that even roger corman was doing at his studio around the late to mid to late 50s it's it's such um it's the such a like it's got such an anachronistic kind of juxtaposition because the word throwbacks, right, because it really feels like in the world building, like so 1940s, but it it looks like late 1950s. Like some of the um, haircuts and the costumes of the women characters, they're giving me like Kim Novak in Vertigo. They're yep. giving me the birds and Bodega Bay. So it's got this very like late 1950s look in the costume and the makeup and the fashions, but set in this kind of late 1940s world. And then at the same time, it's um, really progressive for its time in a way. So when the main character loses her baby, the doctor is very sympathetic and is kind of counseling, you know, you need patience, you need calm you need time for her to come around I'm like this doctor 
is ahead of his time. And then all these things about it being women's led and like a women's address. It's a story all about women being like foul to each other. <laughs> it's really, so it's, it's really, it's such a weird mix, isn't it? <laughs> and then you add in the music, which is yeah. just that beatnik of uh, uh, Esquivel gone mad kind of sound that he's playing at one point, he's playing that 78. And sort of snap Arthur France, I'm talking about, he plays the husband, kind of snapping his fingers and everything. And it's yeah. driving everyone nuts. Yeah. And it even drove me nuts. And I love that stuff. And it just- I thought I was having a breakdown during that bit. <laughs> I was like, what's going on? I'm really exactly. confused. <laughs> well, you know, you talk about the doctor and that's Ned Glass, played by Ned Glass. And probably the, one of the most recognizable character actors ever. I remember him from doing a couple of Barney Miller episodes on TV at a huge he had a huge career and was just a uh, just a really recognizable guy. But you're right. And you also when you're looking at characters, this is this is uh, Marsha Hunt's characters movie. She is the protagonist. It's yeah. not Peggy Castle. It's not Arthur no. France. She's the protagonist. And uh, she's an interesting case. I don't know how much you researched her, Allison, but she uh she was, uh, and Michael, you remember how many uh, careers were ruined by red channels, right? Oh, yes. And she was a red channels uh, listee. Uh, she was, and red channels, Allison, was when the, when, uh, the McCarthy era was going on in, yeah. in America in the 50s. And uh, red channels was a publication that, that pointed a finger at, sometimes with little provocation, at people who should not be hired and who were communists, who were left-leaning, who were pinkos. And Mm Marsha Hunt was caught up in that in the 50s. Uh, Marsha Hunt had actually been acting uh, in major studio. I think she was uh, a a Paramount uh, contract player in the 30s when she was 17. So she was probably just just, uh, close to 40 at that time. And and that's a pretty, uh, for that day and age, that's a, yeah. that's pretty long in the tooth for a female for a female lead. Absolutely, unfortunately, but true. <laughs> the fallacy of uh, age discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she yeah she did a really and I think she does a, a terrific job. She's uh, uh, she was always good at, or at least everything I've seen her in. Michael, have you have you seen her in much? Not enough, actually. Mm-hmm. I haven't. Uh, I find that what when I do see. When I do see uh, Marsha Hunt on screen, it's like she takes charge of whatever scene she's in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think much of that in this case must have been by default because mm. um, the story tends to direct itself. Charles Marquis Warren is the director of record, but there's not a great deal of directorial style here. I right. thought the same. Mm-hmm. I thought the same. Mm-hmm. The, it- the interest in it all comes to me from kind of the performances and the situation, but there, there isn't um, a great deal of kind of flair mm-hmm. or sense of kind of a unique style or look to the film. There isn't a sense of like a strong directorial voice. It feels like the film's just kind of moving along on its own and you can get what you need to get out of it, but it's not being presented with any kind of particular panache nor just, is there yeah. a sense of identification with the genre of course you, you mm. helps to remember that uh, warren over the long term of his career was was a specialist in westerns mm-hmm. and uh, and these two pictures from the same company that he made westerns for uh, were flukes 
in a in a body of work that is mostly frontier adventure. Yeah, and he actually was also a, a Western pulp writer, Michael. You remember he was immersed in westerns, and this is yeah, this is about as far away from a western as as you can get. You know, well, that uh, of course the companion feature has that same sense of kind of disorientation within its own genre, a picture called The Unknown Terror. Uh, same studio, same, uh, basically same production company. That's one with the oatmeal monster, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the oatmeal is, I think that's what we call it when we saw it as kids, the uh, oatmeal monster. When, 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 my, when my uncle previewed The Unknown Terror at his one of his movie theaters when it was new, uh, he, he referred to it as the fungus among us. <laughs> but that was charles marquis warren as well right yes right exactly and that's uh, and that's why those two stand out so wow, uh, strikingly cool. <laughs> from his body of work yeah yeah they really do and of course he went on and he what was a co-creator of like gunsmoke and rawhide and the virginian okay and it's time if i think it's this is good a time as any to bring up a completely irrelevant life <laughs> observation peggy castle and Marcia Hunt both got their stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in the same year. Mm. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> 1960. <laughs> like I say, it's apropos. Where do you go with the conversation on that? But I just, I did that research. I was so proud of myself. Yeah. I didn't throw it in. And that looked like the right place to That's do it. That's brilliant. Yeah, what, it's going in. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys, how do you guys feel about Peggy Castle's performance? I am. I expected that she was going to be the protagonist and the way the story set up at the beginning and the opening scenes on the beach. And then I'm making notes like I've got a notebook full of notes here. And I was like writing down like the blonde woman's doing this. She's a protagonist. And then I was like, oh, no, it's not. It's not her story. It really she's like the vessel for the story and the, the vessel for the past wife. Um, so I was slightly disorientated in the same way Michael's talked about disorientation within genre in terms of directing. Um, I think there was a slight disorientation for me within whose story it was mm -hmm. um, to start with. But then once we got going and I realized it was Kate, I, I was on board with her. I could have done with more time with her, to be honest. And even more of her like confronting people. She got very confrontational towards the end. And there was a lot of her standing up for herself going like, I don't care, I will defeat you. And I was like, I'd have liked a bit more of this from Kate earlier on as well. Like this would have been good. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Peggy Castle has a difficult assignment to not truly yes. the protagonist, but the, the embodiment of the motivating crisis. Yeah. And uh, I, I, uh, I find nothing flawed about her performance and certainly the character is written exactly as i would think it should be yeah and she's a lot that character of course uh, uh marcia hunt's character is kind of laboring uh, under under some uh, a, yeah. a pretty hard assignment because peggy yeah. castle is flashy and marcia hunt's yes. character is I'm not going to use the term mousy, but less flashy, shall we say. Every day, an everyday kind of everyday. person. Everyday yes. perfect. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> it's an everyday person that's just caught up. It's it's the classic situation. It's the everyday person caught up in the in the unknown and unexpected. Well, think of it. Think of it as a uh, as a mid-century poverty row equivalent of a Val Luton picture. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Perfect. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and, and we could go on and on and on with this. The inventory of likenesses, but 
I got a distinct uh, seventh victim vibe. Well, and I got and I got a I walked with a zombie. Yeah. And I got white zombie at the end. There you I mean, should, we, <laughs> should can we can I briefly mention the end? I won't give away the actual end, All but right. there's a point where a character wakes up and says, I was having the most awful dream. And it made me think so much of White Zombie and how at the end of White Zombie, Madeline awakens from her zombie trance and she goes, oh, Neil, I dreamed. I dreamed. And, and dream. then um, yeah. it's just like, it means like everything awful that happened to her body and to everyone around them during the whole of the film is just like mitigated completely because <laughs> she's not going to remember any of it. Right. And I had the same thing with the end of this film as well, this sense of for certain characters, the whole period would just be a dream. Mm-hmm. And it gave me white zombie like mm-hmm. so hard. It really mm-hmm. did. <laughs> did you get any Yes. Did you get any Wizard of Oz vibe on that, Allison? Kind of the same deal, wasn't it? Um, you were there, um, and you were there, and you were there, right? Yeah, yeah um, kind of, like I would have liked to, but there's something about when I think of Wizard of Oz that immediately makes me think of kind of a visual style. I don't know that I I don't get here. I no. definitely got more of the kind of the static feelings that I get when I'm watching White Zombie. I think that's to do again with the direction and the cinematography mm-hmm. of this one, yeah. really. That it felt it it does have that kind of poverty row feel mm-hmm. and that sense of stasis within the shots. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's absolutely right. It's, yeah. it's, it's it's right there or right there along Poverty Row that you're going to find yep. the greatest willingness to experiment. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, uh, and it's like Edgar. A fearlessness of tackling subject matter that uh, the major studios have to approach so cautiously. Mm. Uh, and you always think, Michael, and we've talked about this a lot, you and I, um, and Allison, probably you feel the same way. Uh, I always think of Edgar Omer, and I think mm. of how he said he stayed with PRC because there was so little money involved that he could do anything that he wanted. Yes. And it's always a trade-off. Yes. Uh, yes. As, as I've often said, Joey, we've talked about this. The more fun you have, the less money you make. And uh, in some cases, and I think Michael and I have both in our careers, and I suspect you and yours as well in our writing, we've tried to find that, that, that place where you can yes. do those things. Yeah. And you're willing <laughs> not to make as much money if you can. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and have the creative freedom that brings you happiness that's right that's exactly and have the money that brings you food at the same time yeah you want to do both of those things well let me ask you both this then uh as we conclude would you recommend the film to others and if you would uh let us know why There you go. Michael always laughs we do this. We do this my, my argument is very like uh, what John Belushi says at a certain moment in his Blues Brothers appearances, uh, not pretending to be an authentic blues singer, but just promoting the beat Jesus out of that idiom. And he tells his audience, I, my advice to you is to go out and buy all the blues records you can. I think the more we study and uh, acknowledge the uh, sheer inventiveness of the Poverty Road films, this one included yeah. The, more, the better prepared we are to understand filmmaking as a class. And especially if we pay attention to the names under the credits, 
not mm -hmm. the star players, not necessarily the director, but the writers, the people who worked on the creative ends and seldom got as much credit as you think they must have deserved. Uh, the, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm an easy mark for, for uh, female protagonists uh, in all films, certainly, but especially so in the, in the horror genre where you find so often the leading female character is an expendable cipher mm. and not so in this one. this is this is one of those pictures that that has a distinct uh proto-feminist attitude mm. and uh, I, I i just wonder how many people who saw it when it was brand new fresh out of the film can and yeah popping on the screen for the first time how many people realized how revolutionary an idea that was? Or did they just go for a cheap thrill and feel disappointed because it wasn't a real horror movie? Mm -hmm. Good point. Good point. It's it's a film that it's a film that wakes you up. It's uh, and and pictures like that you are more numerous than you would think, but often it seems they can be counted on the fingers of one hand. Uh, the 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 other picture from that same year that uh, impresses me in that way is the is the uh, uh, Paramount uh, B picture called I Married a Monster from Outer Space, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is it, it's got a True Confessions title, but it is a woman fighting back. Mm. Gloria Talbot, isn't it? Yeah, so Gloria, Gloria Talbot, Talbot and Tom Trine. Who yeah. also had her had her hand in the bees. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Worked for uh, Bird Eye Gordon. You mentioned Tormented earlier. Uh, worked for Bird Eye Gordon in the Cyclops, and uh, and in fact, Peggy Castle worked for Bird Eye Gordon uh, in uh, in uh, the uh, beginning of the end, in which giant yeah. grasshoppers invaded Chicago, as you know. And uh, I say this as the former president from about 1962 of the Bird Eye Gordon fan club. Just had mm -hmm. to get one in there for Bird. <laughs> Well, this, uh, this 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 picture back from the dead, yes, I recommended without reservation. It has the qualities that one associates in our southwestern ter territory of the United States with the community of cowgirls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The two qualities of uh, grace and gumption. Mm -hmm. And of course, Good gumption point. is an old Scots concept. <laughs> Gumption seems so appropriate for the character of Kate as yes. well, I think. Um, yeah, I, I would recommend it. I think particularly if, like me, you're a sucker for a horror film led by a woman that is set at the seaside and of that there are there are more than you would realize um if you like a good kind of gothic horror with a cliff top setting and the promise of someone going over the cliffs <laughs> at some point um fil films like um my Ju my name is julia ross from 1945 or oh, the amazing mr x from mm -hmm. 1948 as yeah. well as the undying monster and the uninvited mm -hmm. if if that your kind of thing if you like the kind of 40s gothic women-led kind of horror film but you want to see what happens when you make that in the late 1950s then this might be the film for yeah, you you're good yeah absolutely absolutely well thank you and this is the time now allison that that we get to uh, talk about what we've got out there in case anyone wants to uh investigate our writing about this topic and other topics even further so let's start with you I know you have a newsletter oh I do oh thank you for bringing yeah, it up sure. um 
so if you if you go to my website that's alisonpierce.com um a-l-i-s-o-n-p-e-i-r-s-e my pierce is spelt very weird um if you go to alisonpierce.com you'll see the newsletter tab and you can join for free my bi-weekly horror film newsletter the losers club um, which i just write about whatever i've been watching or reading which is is wide and varied according to whatever writing assignment i am very quickly completing at that point and um the other thing i suppose is my latest book which is women make horror filmmaking feminism and genre which has now won lots of awards and is doing very well and you can find out about that on my website too great all right thank you and uh michael what about you what's going on with you uh we're riding high with the new uh graphic novel lone star larceny Mm -hmm. uh which is which is uh a uh, combination of original uh, comic book stories and a lot of revamped uh, classics from the 40s and 50s. Uh, right. I, I think I think we may be the only book in print or in the history of publishing to uh, contain three entirely self-contradictory Bonnie and Clyde stories. <laughs> uh, we chose that deliberately wanted to do a true crime book but you can't do a true crime book without dealing in fiction uh partly because you reach the point where uh empirical history in, uh, invariably craters to folklore uh-huh. and uh, so that's that's yeah the the, the the thing came about as kind of a fluke uh, uh publisher had wanted had a publisher had approached me about doing a book of texas crime stories and I insist that it must start with the Spanish conquest of the 16th century. Uh, in other words, I wanted to run the gamut from genocide to Bonnie and Clyde <laughs> <laughs> with a little homicide thrown in. And so, so we ended up with a, with a whole bunch of Ides, uh, which kind of manifested themselves not in the Ides of March, but in the Ides of Texas. And as we all know, the Ides of Texas are upon, upon you. you. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and people should know also that if they've, uh, they've uh, read your other books, there is also a thing that you do with existing comic book stories and add, if I may say so, pretty Dadaistic dialogue in some <laughs> cases. Now, sometimes it's pretty, but sometimes it's pretty straightforward. Most of the time it's, it's a combination of vaudeville and uh, and uh, and Jean Paul Sartre. And uh, well, I, so... I, I it, uh, my rewriting of ancient comic book dialogue is more a matter of uh, trying to rewrite "Waiting for Godot." Right. Except in this case, <laughs> I usually refer to it as "Waiting for Sluggo." <laughs> That's right. And the, and Godot or Sluggo usually shows up at some point too, which <laughs> makes it a little different. Uh, I've got uh, the, the big deal for me is this is the 40th anniversary of the first novel, uh, first horror novel I did with Ron Wolf called Old Fears. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, once again, has been is and has been for the past three years uh, under uh, option from uh, Sony Pictures Television. And uh, we, Ron and I, for the 40th anniversary, we got a brand new cover. We got some brand new nonfiction material about the travails of the book. And then two new stories with a, a beginning and an end to the book with the same character. And mm-hmm. it's called Old Fears. And it's, uh, it's out on Amazon, of course. And then I would like to also plug the cleansing books, uh, Seventh Sense, Satan's Swine, and Sinister Serpent, 
old 1930s epistolary novels from uh, Babylon Books that I wrote with Robert Brown that are getting some some good notices. And I too, like Allison, have a uh, have a newsletter. Mine's only monthly, Allison. I'm much older <laughs> than you. I, that's all I can do. Uh, and it sometimes talks about Western swing music and other things. And I've got this month, I'll have an appreciation of Michael Nesmith in addition to the horror content. So uh, if you're interested in that, it's, uh, it's also free. It's uh, at my website, www.johnwoolley, J-O-H-N-W-O-O-L-E-Y.com. So I think you know that you, uh, you, John, you do know that your Western swing uh, research and uh, preservation efforts uh, may, may have their largest audience in the British Empire. We do. We have some uh, listeners. I know I have a I have a show, Allison, a radio show, Western mm-hmm. Swing radio show on Saturday nights here. And I know I have people writing me at the Saturday nights at seven would be like, what, three or four in the morning where you are? Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. <laughs> and they're listening. They're, they're getting up. I don't know if they're setting their alarms or what, or they just don't wow. go to bed, but they're listening to it and letting me know about it. So, uh, so oh, yeah, that's, so uh, it's, it's, that's, that's it, funny. I, I found that out almost by accident when uh, you played some of uh, my Western Swing Masters material on your yeah. radio show. Yeah. And I started getting Facebook raves. <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I've got my one of my all-time favorite of Michael H. Price and his Western Swing Masters songs. I'm playing this Saturday night. It is the it was it is uh, Bob Wilson, Antonio Rose, as reimagined by Bob Dylan. Uh, called uh, just like what is it? Just like San Antonio Rose, approximately is that just like the Rose of San Antonio? Just like yes. the Rose of San Antonio, approximately, and mm-hmm. it is absolutely beautiful. We get requests. Strange for how strange how the lyrics "Rose of San Antonio" scan perfectly to "Like a Rolling Stone." <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> Allison, thank you. Will you do it again with us at some point? I would love to. It's you only a, have to ask. It's been a pleasure <laughs> to have you on the show. Thank you. And Joey, thank you. And uh, we'll we'll reconvene shortly. And uh, and uh, meanwhile, I hope your book sells a million copies, Allison. And mm, we all get, all we get a bunch of new people uh, signed up for our uh, for our newsletters. And Michael, I hope that that uh, your book does the same thing. Rock and Thank you very much. All Thank right. you. So much. Right. See Thank you later. You. Uh, the time differential kind of throws things a bit off. So. It does. It absolutely does. What happens when you get somebody from England wants gone? Time differential throws it off for me because it's too early to have a glass of wine. Oh yeah. yeah.